everybody. Also to Crossroads, good seeing everybody in this room. Uh, thanks for coming out in the cold, and I think there's probably more people joining us online. We're glad that you're joining us, uh, and it's good to be here. Good to be up again. I'm up kind of earlier than I used to uh, be up when I would bring messages here, but it's good to be up here. And some of you are now, now you're coming in or came in late, you're going, now who is this guy? And I get that. I haven't been up in a while, hold your applause that I haven't been up in a while, but, uh, but it's good to be here, good to be back. And Ryan, I wanna thank Ryan for inviting me to be part of this series uh, of Vibrant and Vital Love based on some of the talks of Martin Luther King. And Ryan said there's only one requirement if you're coming up, you gotta get a haircut. And so this is, uh, you have to blame Ryan for this right here. But tomorrow we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. And I remember exactly where I was when he delivered his I'd Have a Dream speech uh, in front of the Lincoln Memorial during the March on Washington, August 28, 1963. I, I was sick. I had the flu. And as a child, uh, when I got sick, which wasn't very often, um, my parents didn't get sick leave. They both worked. Uh, there was no parental leave time, anything like that. So I would go from our apartment to my grandmother's on the north side of Chicago. And I was with her at her kitchen table watching on her little, probably a 10-inch TV. And we watched together as Dr. King delivered that speech. I have a dream in front of over 250,000 people. And he dreamed of a day when racial injustice or racial justice and economic justice and equality for all would be the rule of the land. And often people forget at the core of his life, Dr. King was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a pastor and it was his faith in Jesus that formed all he sought to do as a civil rights leader. And in fact, it was under, his understanding of texts like Luke 4, 18 and 19. I think it's on the message notes and we have it up on the screen maybe. It was his understanding of texts like this that formed all he sought to do. When Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It was text just like that one that formed all he sought to do as a civil rights leader. And he talked from these kinds of texts over and over and over again. The Pew Research Center, this is interesting. I read this this week. Uh, they did a study two years ago. They found out most of what's preached in churches today in America is not what Jesus preached. Because they say over 99% of the preaching that goes on in churches in America, they never mention the poor and the oppressed today. Yet these were, these were the exact words, Luke 4, of Jesus' first sermon. These were the first words he spoke after he'd been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He went into the wilderness driven by the Spirit. He came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, and in the power of the Spirit of God, in his first message, he said, God's primary interest is the plight of the poor. 
the prisoners, the oppressed, the broken, the least of these. And the Bible says after he preached that first sermon, Luke chapter 4, the people tried to kill him. I mean, read the text. They tried to kill him right after that. The Pew Foundation, they say 99% of the time in the study that they did two years ago, poverty is not even mentioned as Ryan did. It's not even mentioned in most churches today. But Jesus said, I have come to set the to bring good news to the poor. And he anointed me to not only bring good news to the poor, but to, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, racial, economic prisoners. Those are the kind of texts he would talk about. And very few people in all history fought for the poor like Dr. Martin Luther King did. And he paid a high price, didn't he? He fought with courage, with determination for food for the poor for housing for the poor, education for the poor, job opportunities, voting rights, all of that. And that's why his dream didn't die when he was assassinated. His dream did not die because it wasn't his dream. It's the dream of God for the whole world. That's what it is. It's the dream of the kingdom of God. And let me just remind everybody and this is a first fill-in if you're a fill-in person. God hates injustice. God hates injustice and oppression of any kind. The first message Jesus brought was about that. God hates that stuff. And in fact, you want to stir the passion and the ire of a just God? I got a plan for you. Here's how you do it. You ignore the poor. Neglect widows and orphans. Uh, devalue somebody who's got a different skin color than you or speaks another language. Turn away the homeless. Snub the hungry, the hurting. Immigrants, LGBTQ people. Stand by while innocent people are being oppressed and victimized. It doesn't take much. doesn't take much to inflame the passions of God when it comes to matters pertaining to justice. And just to set the record straight, just to set it straight, the rest of us human beings, we're not perfectly just people. That's another one you could fill in. We're not perfectly just people, which is why a little injustice here or there, that doesn't even bother us that much anymore. Ongoing oppression, bigotry, racism, sexism, hatred, Xenophobia, violence that we see in our world and our country. Oh, oh, it'll catch our attention. But very rarely does it cut us all the way to the core, cut us so deeply that it catalyzes us into radical action of some kind to bring about God's justice to this world. And you should know economic injustice and racial injustice they're having disastrous effects in our country, our society, and our world today. Economic injustice, racial injustice, having terrible effects, disastrous effects today, all over. And that's what I want to talk about for a few moments. I want to talk about both those subjects. I want to talk about economic injustice that we see, and I want to talk about racial injustice on this Martin Luther King weekend. And let me just give you fair warning. This is not for the faint of heart. It's not. 
So let's spend a few moments on economic injustice that we see in our country and our world today. Most informed scholars uh, who have studied this a long time, they look at our generation, they say this, they're of the opinion that we in our generation, if we don't take radical action to end the economic injustice that exists in the world, future generations are going to look at us like we look back on the people during the Holocaust that did nothing. Like the National Church of Germany that became compliant with the Nazis. Future generations will look at us. They're going to say, I can't believe with all the wealth, all the affluence of the West, they sat idly by. They, they did nothing and watched hundreds of millions of people die. Die unimaginably deaths. Horrible deaths. And there's a lot of truth about what people say about that, if we don't do anything. And the sobering reality is, I read this week, 8 billion people on the planet, nearly half, over 3 billion, live in poverty. Less than 250 a day. They eat one meal a day, maybe. No real access to a Doctors, several of them watched their children die of preventable causes. Malaria, diarrhea, things like that. And of those, uh, th over 3 billion, 10% uh, live in what's called extreme poverty. They didn't eat today at all. Maybe not tomorrow. 828 million people ser seriously undernourished in the world today. And that's down from 854 million just a few years ago. But it's going up now. It's on the increase. There are many people, millions, hundreds of millions, on the brink of starvation. Mainly today in places like Syria, Afghanistan, Ukraine now, Haiti, and Gaza. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse in this coming year, in years ahead. And the stats are frightening. I mean, don't get lost in all this stuff. According to the UN, in the last 24 hours, while we were sleeping comfortably in our beds and hopefully warm beds, over 25,000 children died because of hunger or easily prevented diseases, mostly due to living in extreme poverty. And we think it would be different here in the United States. I mean, we're the wealthiest country in the history of the world. But approximately 13 million children live in poverty. And of those 2 million live in, by global definition, live in extreme poverty, where less than $2 per person per family is made, that kind of income. And these kids would be considered living in extreme poverty if they lived in Congo or Bangladesh, but they live here in the United States. In Germany, there are no kids that are in that category of extreme poverty, none. And housing is a terrible situation for people in America. Over 49% of Americans say affordable housing for them, trying to find a place they can afford, is very difficult. And that continues to get worse. We know what rent is in our area, even around here. People in low-wage job, low jobs today in America pay over half their income 
for housing. I'm proud of our church. Our church is partnering with the Loveland Housing Authority to provide affordable housing right here on the, the property that we once owned just east of us here. Poverty is particularly difficult for single mothers. A third of all families headed by a single woman were in poverty last year. For people of color, it's over 50%. That's over 15.6 million households in America. And you should know from the research, most of the people that I'm talking about here living in poverty and extreme poverty in America today, they're working working very, very hard, trying to lift themselves out of the situation. I read a book uh, a few years back. It was called Nickled and Dimed, Not Making It in America Today. And this writer, Barbara Enrich, she spent the whole book describing a class of poor people that are called the working poor. And she spent a year living in three different cities in the U.S., trying to carve out a workable life at entry-level jobs. And she did it undercover. What she discovered is what has millions of Americans today disillusioned. It's this. person can work hard 40 hours a week at an entry-level pay and wind up still not making it, still ending up, some of them, living on the street or in their car when they're working. She found out what a lot of people in the U.S. already know. The economic math that used to work in the past doesn't work anymore here. Not in many parts of our country. It used to be, you know, we'd say to our kids, okay, get an education, go to college, get a good job. Uh, if you're going to get married, get married. Put off having kids, though. Put aside a little nest egg so you can buy a house. Get one, then start a family. That doesn't work in the United States anymore for most people. Not that equation, it doesn't. Monthly wages earned at entry level or minimum wage jobs? Minimum wage jobs, full time, will not rent you a single bedroom apartment anywhere in the United States. Not if you're just working at minimum wage and being able to buy groceries and maybe eat meat once a week. That kind of pay will not give you the earning power to minimum wage job, 40 hours a week, won't give you enough money to buy a used car or buy some new clothes, over-the-counter medicine, stuff like that, let alone build a little emergency fund for when trouble hits or set aside money, a little nest egg so you can put it, save it up and put it down on a house. Doesn't work anymore. She worked 40 hours a week in good places. Couldn't make ends meet. And what's ironic, she was working for companies raking in hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, when their employees weren't able to make ends meet. That's injustice right there. Virtually, I read this. Virtually nowhere in the U.S. can a full-time minimum wage employee afford a two-bedroom apartment. Nowhere in the U.S. And in fact, two such jobs will not rent you a two-bedroom apartment in 29 states in the District of Columbia. Three full-time minimum wage jobs will not get you a two-bedroom apartment in California. Four of them will not get you a two-bedroom apartment in Hawaii. No. Matthew Desmond, in, in a great book, Poverty by America, he says, we are the richest country on the planet 
with the worst poverty. And God knows. God knows. The wealthy few still control the rules of the economic game, both in our country and in the world. God knows the poor have no real power to change this stuff. Not the economic equation. Not from their standpoint. They can't do anything about it. And God sees it all. God sees it all. And Scripture reveals to us that the knowledge of ongoing and economic injustice, it always infuriates God and always has. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. The writer writes, But they, they, stubbornly turned their backs on the poor and stopped their ears. What a word picture. They refused to pay attention to the economic injustice in the world. And they was the rich. The rich. They put their hands over their ears. What a picture. You know, they stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear the cry of the poor. No, no. And their hearts became rock hard. And Zechariah says God became very angry. Predictably angry. And I know somebody here is thinking right now, well, I thought the Bible said, John, I thought the Bible said, you, the poor will always be with you. That's right, the Bible does say that. But you've got to read the whole text in Deuteronomy. It says, yes, the poor will always be with you because you're greedy, unjust, and won't treat people right. And because of that, the poor will always be with you. And God has and is today. Always angry about this kind of stuff. You know, when the, the rich oppress the poor, or when the, when the people with wealth aren't trying to do anything to lift people out of poverty. Economic injustice is alive and well in our country and in our world. It's having disastrous effects. And here's another one. Let's talk just a little bit about racial injustice. Um, racial injustice. And unless you're living under a rock, uh, you know racial injustice is alive and well in our world and in our country, and it seems to be getting worse. You know, in a recent study by the Pew Research Center, they found out median household wealth, not income, median household wealth for white Americans, $168,200. Median household wealth for black Americans, $27,100. Research shows white households are 13 times richer than black households today. They own 18 times as much. Infant mortality rate among blacks is more than double today what it is for whites. I read 10% of whites live below the poverty line in America. For blacks, it's 28%. Hispanics, 23%. But the black-white income gap it's growing. It's 40 times greater today than in 1967. But often we whites, we either refuse to believe the statistics or more commonly, we find a way to explain all this stuff away. I agree with Newt Gingrich, 50th Speaker of the House, representatives. He said in a very good documentary, the documentary 13th is what it's titled. He said, virtually no white person understands what it's like to be black in America. And I think it's true. I don't understand it. I have no idea what it's like. 
but I know what the Bible says. I know the Bible says in Genesis 1.27, it says God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's all people. All people, all people created in the image of God. White supremacy movements, racism, denies that. Denies, denies the dignity of every human being. It negates the gospel. It ignores the fact that we're all created in the image of God. The image of God is not confined, confined to a culture or a country or a nationality or a religion or a sexual orientation. Not at all. We're all created, every human being, in the image of God. For decades around here, we've said, you'll never lock, look into the eyes of a person that was not created in the image of God. Never. We'll never lock eyes with a person for whom Christ did not die. And what that says to me is we have to welcome everybody. Not only welcome everybody, embrace everybody. And do what we can to, to help brothers and sisters to rise to a standard of living that is really living. These are the kind of things Dr. King would talk about. And when we see this kind of spirit in people that are doing all they can to lift people out of poverty and, and to embrace all people, regardless of the race, nationality, any of those things, when we see people doing that, we love it. But when we don't see it happening, it ought to kill us. It ought to. And let there be no doubt about it. Love is a supreme value of the Christian faith. Love is what the Christian faith is about. A vibrant and vital love. That's, that's the hallmark of the Christian faith. That's a supreme value. I mean, Jesus one time, he was challenged, boiled down faith to its absolute essence. Jesus said, that's easy. Love God. Love God with all your heart. Love God with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind. And then love people. Love your neighbor. Love people. That's what the faith is about. You love God, you love people, you can get a lot of other stuff wrong in this life. That's what it is. That's from Mark 12. The Apostle Paul one time, he made a list of all the qualities the Spirit of God wants to most generate in the life of a Christ follower. Top of the list, Galatians 5.22. Number one, love. That's what he said. Love. Dr. King reminded people of this all the time, the centrality of love. He used to love to sprinkle these words in his talks. He'd say, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Hate will never drive out hate. Only love can do that. Only love. It's all about love, Dr. King would, would assert. And I think this is, I mean, this applies especially to all of us here and all of us listening online, watching. I think the subject of loving all people matters to all of us so much because I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's a growing perception in America today that Christ, Christians or Christ followers are not as loving as they ought to be. There's that growing perception. I read these words of a guy uh, a couple of years ago by his own words. He said he was an agnostic. Then he said, no, I don't believe there's a God. And he said, actually, I think anybody who believes in God is pretty misguided. 
But this is what he said. He said, in my opinion, Christians aren't particularly loving people. I don't see him loving gay and transgendered people very well. I don't see him loving immigrants, is the word he used, all that much. Many of them, I happen to know, are closet racists. He said, my neighbor gets up, goes to church every Sunday. I don't think he's any more loving to me, than me or the rest of my neighbors. And maybe you've heard people talk that way. I mean, my opinion, this is why the church is not growing today in America. This is the reason so many people are staying away. They're tired of the hypocrisy where everybody, whether they believe or not, they know, hey, Christian people ought to be the most loving people on the planet. They're the ones that ought to be caring for people that are downtrodden, going through difficult times. But they don't see it happening. So how can we grow in love? How can we grow in love? And I think 1 John 4.19 gives us a clue when it says we love because he first loved us. We love because God the Father first loved us. And the greater the greater our awareness of the Father's love for us, the more loving we eventually become. I believe that's true. I'll say it again. The greater our awareness of the God the Father's love for us, the more loving we become eventually. I mean, our capacity to love is tightly correlated to opening up our hearts, opening up our minds to just how infinite the flow of God's love is in our own lives. I mean, I think it's true in my own life. When my vision of God's love has been expanded, my capacity to love has been expanded. I can feel it. I think my family, my friends can tell it. And always remember Always remember, always remember the ultimate test of a transformed life is a loving heart, a compassionate heart. That's the ultimate test of a transformed life. Ryan always says it's not about church. No, it's not about giving those kinds of things. The ultimate test, are we loving people? Do we have a compassionate heart? As people of God, I mean, we're to be the most loving, compassionate people, the most merciful people. The most, we're to be the people that stand up for justice for all people. And as people of God, we're to be people with, with eyes that see the situation in the world and country we live in, and we don't close our eyes or, you know, we don't, we don't plug our ears to the cry for help. No. We have eyes that see. We have ears that are open, listening to the cries of people that are hurting, and hands that figure out how to help. That's what we're to be about. And this is not about politics. It's not about left or right or any of that. It's not about politics. You know what this is about? This is about right and wrong. That's what it's about. My friend Gary Walter, who's a past uh, president of the Covenant denomination that we were affiliated with. He used to love to say, and this is important in this election year, he'd say, we don't follow an elephant. We don't follow a donkey. 
We follow a lamb, a lamb. And the lamb of God understands what it's like to be a victim of oppression. Maybe that's why Jesus talked about it in his first sermon. He knew what it was like to live a life of oppression. He did. I'll remind you, Jesus was a refugee before his first birthday. His, his family, before his first birthday, they were fleeing Israel. They were hoping to get across the border into Egypt for safety. He was raised in a Jewish home. By the way, white, uh, white Christian supremacist, Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, was a dark-skinned Jewish man from the Middle East who spoke Aramaic. He lived in a conquered and colonized country by the Roman Empire. He healed a woman from Syria's daughter and his cross was carried by Simon the Cyrene from the continent of Africa. He was fluent in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. The incarnation, God's coming to earth would have been impossible without a woman. And his resurrection or his death on the cross was witnessed by women. His resurrection was announced first by women, all in a culture where the most marginalized and discriminated against people were women. And his, he made a hated Samaritan, a hated Samaritan, the star, the hero of his most famous story. And an enemy soldier, a centurion, Jesus said, that person's got the greatest faith. And Jesus came announcing his ministry in Luke 4, as I said. Luke 4, 18. He came announcing his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me, preached good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, set the oppressed free. And Jesus' walk matched precisely his talk. His ministry corresponded precisely with those words of Luke chapter 4. And he spent most of his life, not around the rich and powerful, but among the poor, the suffering and the oppressed. And it's the voice of Jesus in John 20, 21, that still haunts me, still makes me look at my own life at my age, when he said, as the Father sent me, I send you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. As Father had sent me to bring good news to the poor, to heal the sick, and you know, give sight to the blind, feed the hungry, care for and welcome the foreigner. I send you. I send you. I mean, it's quite a day. It's quite a day when we come to grips with the fact every human being in our field of vision is someone who matters immensely to God. Therefore, they ought to matter immensely to me. Another way of putting it is, when I look at people through God lenses, when I see people through God's eyes, God's lenses, instead of whatever lens uh, maybe my parents gave me growing up or, or extended family or friends or a church that I was part of or the internet or politicians, you look at the world through God lenses. The world looks different. People look different. And when we look at people through God lenses, it strengthens our capacity to love all people and to, and to figure out ways to bring people to a standards of living that are living. 
I mean, when you see people through God lenses, you see young people, old people, you go, I care for you both, whatever your age. I love you both. You see black people, white, Asian people. You say, I love you. I love you. What, what can I do to help? You see Muslims, Jews, Palestinians, Israelis, atheists, whatever. I love you. You see gay people, straight people, transgendered people. You say, I love you. Republicans, Democrats, I love you. I have to. Citizens, undocumented, immigrants, I love you. Because all these people are created in God's image. And they matter to the God that I'm trying to follow. I'm trying to live out his image inside of me. I mean, are you willing to do that? Look at people through God lenses. Begin to see people as God sees people, all people. Have that in our heart. Remember Galatians 3.28. You know, closing, Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Not anymore. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free. No. Male nor female. We're all one. We are all one in Christ Jesus. No distinctions in the kingdom of God. No. We're all one in Christ. Doesn't, God doesn't make distinctions. Men and women, we make distinctions, but not God. We're called to love, to care, show mercy, compassion, and to lift up people, all people, wherever we can. Would you be willing to make a commitment to do that as best as you can? I hope so. You know, there was a song, uh, there was a song most associated with Martin Luther King and his movement, it was, it was often called the anthem of the oppressed. It's we shall overcome. And they'd sing it with an attitude. They would sing it with the attitude, if we can, like this, if we can hold on to our nonviolent, we gotta remember that always, nonviolent protests of economic and racial oppression, if we pray long and hard enough, someday, 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 they said, there'd be economic and racial justice. There will someday, they believed, there'd be equality for all. There wouldn't be all this hatred someday. I had such a vivid imagine, or, or image of that in my head when I was a kid. You know, watching uh, clips of Martin Luther King leading people in a protest, usually in the South. and. There'd be thousands of black people behind him, hundreds of white people with him right alongside. They'd be singing this thing together. We shall overcome and rocks and bottles would be thrown at him and attack dogs let loose on him, even among kids there. I mean, it was a horrible sight. But I thought in closing and, you know, with the band here, I thought we should sing it. I thought maybe we could sing this song, We Shall Overcome. As individuals and as a church, kind of our commitment to this. And so I want to invite you to stand. Stand with me. And if we say, uh, you know, we're saying, God, help us. Help us to overcome all this prejudice, all this hatred, junk, uh, discrimination. Help us overcome stupid moments where we... We look down at somebody because maybe, maybe they're 
income level or they have no income or they're living on the street or, or they look different or they speak a different language or they speak even with an accent and all this demeaning stuff that comes into our minds and hearts and we know that as Christ followers we should never have those kinds of thoughts not in the heart of a Christ follower but I thought as we close what if we sang we shall overcome and deep in our hearts believe someday someday we believe by the work of God in our lives and in the life life of our church we're going to overcome all this junk we're going to work and we're going to overcome all this injustice we're going to do our part and we're going to love all people well we're going to love across chasms of any kind I thought this would be a wonderful prayer for all of us so Simon you want to lead us yeah Shall overcome. Sing with us. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe. Shall overcome someday. We'll walk hand in hand. We'll walk hand in hand. We'll walk hand in hand. Oh!